0: I'm Jenny Loeffler,
1: and I'm Gavin Briscoe, and this podcast is not yet rated. Welcome, everybody, to the new episode of This Podcast is Not Yet Rated. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in thus far to all these episodes. Uh, That's why
0: we're uh, still around. Yeah, that's why we're still (laughs) around. And we've
1: been cranking out these weekly episodes. And um, just to kind of get back into the groove, uh, it's been kind of good for us because... um, you know, it's been a while, it's been a few years, uh, but, uh, we are a bi-weekly, not a bi-weekly, bi-monthly, we went over this last time, (laughs) we're a bi-monthly show, so, our normal schedule will be two shows a month, so, uh, starting...
0: We think that's bi-monthly. Yeah,
1: we think that's (laughs) bi-monthly, maybe, I don't know what else it would fucking be, but that's what, okay, we're already explicit, okay, so, anyway, um... Yeah, so uh, basically our next episode is going to be two weeks from now. But we'll tell you more about that at the end of the episode. We just wanted to welcome you in because we're talking about two terrific films this week. We're talking about Todd Haynes' new film, Carol, which just uh, came out in New York and L.A. this past weekend. And we're also talking about Abdelatif ateef Kashish's Blue is the Warmest Color from 2013. Of course, the famous, or infamous, maybe I should say, Palm d'Or winner. At the Cannes Film Festival again from 2013, so we think that this episode is going to have a pretty good discussion. Yeah. but we'll let you guys be the judge.
0: Of course, and if you're listening and you, you have any like questions, comments, or maybe you vehemently disagree with what we're saying, uh, feel free to tweet us at StillNotRated. rated. Send us a message on Facebook, facebook.com/slash this podcast is not yet rated. Or, uh, you know, send us an email the old-fashioned way. This podcast is not yet rated at gmail.com. And uh, with that, we have Todd Haynes' Carol.
1: Dearest, there are no accidents, and no explanation I offer will satisfy you. I like that. You seek resolutions... Because you're young, but you will understand this one day.
0: How many times have you been in love?
1: You're always the most beautiful woman
0: in the room. Therese Belivet. Carol. Tell me you know what you're doing. I never did
1: and then it changed she's still my wife I love her I can't help you with that
0: it shouldn't be like this
1: I know if he can't have me I can't see my daughter Everything comes full circle. We gave each other the most breathtaking of gifts.
0: Carol is based on the Patricia Highsmith novel... Um, called The Price of Salt, which, to my understanding, is kind of almost a cult novel um, in its genre. Uh, I hadn't heard of it until we saw the film at the New York Film Festival this um, just this past fall, like about a month and a half ago. But it first premiered at Cannes to rave reviews. Rooney Mara tied for Best Actress, which kind of, you know, got some attention because it also stars Cate Blanchett as the titular Carol, um, and Rooney Mara is kind of her younger love interest, um, Rez. And this movie really follows these two characters uh, falling in love at a time when it really was not seen as even possible to live and be in love with someone of the same sex. And uh, it really dives into that in a beautiful way. And for me, this is, I think this is one of the best romance films of the year, if not one of the best films of the year. Um, and I I think a lot of that is due to the performances by Mara and Blanchett. And I, I'm kind of curious if you agree with me, Gavin, if the performances carry this, this film, or if there's maybe other factors that you think makes this one of the best films, or if if you don't think this is one of the
1: best films of the year, what what do you think? So I, I just want to make sure that I understand your point of view. So you're, so you're saying that the performances for you are what carry this movie to be one of the best films. Of the I,
0: year. I think if there were any, I mean, it, it's, it's a little, it's a little more than that, but I think without these two performan these two performers, really, um, the film would not be what it is. I think that Mara and Blanchett just play so well off of each other. And, I really, I mean, I feel like I say this every week with whatever film we watch, but I feel like I'm not watching Kate Blanchett on screen. I'm watching Carol fall in love with Therese, and I'm watching these two characters in their world, and the way that, you know, Therese or Mara just falls in love with Carol, and the way we see her looking at her, I don't think that, I don't know, I have a hard time envisioning any other actor portraying that kind of adoration,
1: um... Yeah, I agree. And that's kind of surprising to me, because um, I think like most people who kind of fanatically watch the Cannes Film Festival from a distance, as I do every year, you know, it's one of my dreams to go to France, to be... To, to see some films, uh, at Cannes, uh, when they premiere, uh, but, like, you know, most people around the world, I'm just watching online, and, uh, you know, I'm following the reviews and stuff, and it was a little bit of a surprise to people when Rooney Mara took the Best Actress Prize, or tied for it, as you were alluding to, because, uh, you know, for many people, uh, this was, this was a Kate Blanchett movie. It was Todd Haynes, well, and it was Kate Blanchett coming together again. And it's again. Kate
0: Blanchett as Carol in Carol, right?
1: And it it just kind of seemed like the perfect fit. But and I and I think a lot of that is because people respect Rooney Mara as an actress. Clearly, she's been nominated for an Academy Award. Um, but I guess I've never really been. I mean, I said this on a previous episode. My favorite Mara is Kate Mara. Um, <laughs> And I think this episode maybe might have pushed me more into the Rudy Mar camp, which is saying a lot because these are two very talented female actresses. But I think that what she's doing here is really, really different than whatever else I've seen her in. And I clued Ain't the Body Saints in that, that wonderful uh, film that she did with Casey Affleck from a few years back uh, that I might encourage people to just check out just because it's so... Um, anachronistic in terms of like her, uh, the rest of her filmography. To but put that on my list. Yeah, no, you would, you would probably really enjoy it. But it's, um, yeah, I I don't know what she's doing here is really mature and subtle work, and I I just I you know I have to I have to give it to her for this one. I mean, she is the protagonist of this film, despite it being called Carol, um, um. and we're really seeing. Uh, the cape blanchet character and all of these things through her eyes because of that and she does have to carry the movie um cape blanchet has the show your role mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes sure. she has the emotional fireworks that she can delve into and Rooney mar's character doesn't have those moments where she can break down into tears and cry or whatever she has to hold it together
0: it's a lot of she's observing what carol's going through and we kind of have to see her process that information and i think that that takes a certain level of skill to be able to do that on screen
1: right and to do it on screen without calling attention to itself Mm -hmm. like there's a way to listen That some actors do that calls attention to, look at how good I'm listening right now. As opposed to what Mara's doing, which is, she's observing, and she's in the scene, she's giving Blanchett what she needs to feed off of to create this great performance that Blanchett gives. But But if you take Rooney Mara out and you replace her with... You know, I don't even know who you might replace her with. Honestly, (laughs) that's how good she is. But, like, (laughs) let's say a Jennifer Lawrence type or somebody like that. Um, Or even, you know, a Felicity Jones type. I just don't think that those actresses would be able to lend what Mara gives.
0: I think it would be a completely different film It would be a completely
1: different film because we're also talking about the chemistry. This is a love story. Mm -hmm. So we're also talking about the chemistry between these two actresses, which to me is so dynamic and fascinating. Not only is the, the relationship dynamic interesting, this this older, uh, much more mature woman who has had uh, relationships with women in the past, both sexual and just romantic, and then uh, the Therese character, played by Rooney Mara, who uh, has only been with men and who hasn't even thought of...
0: Being with a woman. Of being
1: with a woman. It hasn't even occurred to her that she isn't... Uh, straight, quote-unquote, until the first moment when she sees when she the sees Carol, Carol. Carol. character. And you had an interesting opinion about that first moment.
0: I mean, there was just something... I mean, we'll get into it a little later in the episode as well, but she she sees Carol for the first time in the, de, in the department store in which she works, and she's selling her, or she's going to sell her, a, I believe, a train set. Um, but she, there's just this moment she sees her and, you know, Kate Blanchett looks lovely as she always does, but you just really see this kind of moment within Mara when she just, you can just tell it's kind of like, without sounding corny, this kind of like love at first sight kind of thing, but maybe living in a time when it's not okay to love someone of the same gender, she's not really realizing that within herself, but she's like, something's different about this person I'm seeing.
1: Right. This, it, and I think that's exactly spot on. I think this story is about the story is about a lot of things, but I think it's about the dangers that living in a, in a strictly binary society have on people who don't fit into those slots as perfectly mm-hmm. as, you know, you know the culture wants you to, or society wants you to. And so it doesn't even occur to Rooney Mara until she sees this other woman and something, we're not even quite sure what it is, but something sparks in her. Mm-hmm. Um, this this kind of quest that really the rest of the movie is about. It is this coming of age story, but it's also this, um, it's not even coming of age story. It's really being an honest with yourself story, if there even is such a genre. <laughs>
0: it's almost like, uh, I don't want to say self-actualization, because that's... A- it is a it self-actualization. It's, it's a it's a certain kind of self-actualization, and she's kind of being honest with herself and, um, letting herself live as she wants to, I guess. You know, she believes right, she, that she yeah. needs to, and, um, I guess, I, I don't think I could see anyone else but Mara playing that out on screen, and we, we were really fortunate. Um, we keep saying she had these looks on her face that we were able to kind of, you know, transcribe or translate um, as to what they mean. But we were lucky to see um, a talk back after the the screening that we saw at the New York Film Festival. And someone in the audience actually asked, you know, how how did you develop this, this look that you have, this look of Therese? And she was like, well, you know, it was pretty easy when I... I have to just observe Cate Blanchett. Like, it's really easy when you're playing opposite Cate Blanchett and you just have to, like, look at her and be able to physicalize that.
1: Right. And to a certain extent, that's kind of, like, audience pandering because clearly, like... You have
0: a Best Actress Oscar winner. Everyone
1: everyone loves Cate Blanchett. She's the queen, literally, (laughs) almost. But, um, or at least she's played her quite a few times. Um, Yeah, I don't... I don't know. I mean, I just can't say... I think we've been focusing on Mara a lot, and, mm-hmm. you know, deservedly so, but let's get a little bit into Blanchette here and yeah. what she's doing, because, like I like I mentioned, she does have the showier role.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, she's playing this woman who's kind of been there, done that before, right? And she's kind of settled down into this more heteronormative lifestyle. She has a, she husband, has a, a husband.
0: a husband and a daughter. She has a daughter
1: with that husband. Um, Played
0: by Kyle Chandler.
1: Played very well by Kyle Chandler, I might add, who I think is on quite the role in terms of his film characters recently. Because, I mean, even just, uh, if you were to go back to uh, The Wolf of Wall Street just two years ago, I mean, that for me, he was kind of a revelation in that movie. He was, as somebody who hadn't seen Friday Night Lights, uh, the TV show when it was on, like, I was always kind of, I never really understood this love that everybody had for Kyle Chandler, and then...
0: Until you experience until Kyle I, Until I experienced <laughs> his
1: performances, and, like, frankly, he's a great actor, and he is kind of this embodiment of 50s masculinity. He is a man's man, he's a guy's guy, he is what... He is essentially the embodiment of what so many men at that period of time wanted to be. He's rich, he's well-off, he has a beautiful wife, he has a daughter, he lives in a great house, he has a great job, and... But his his
0: life is not perfect. But his
1: life is not perfect because they've created this kind of dollhouse, this Mm -hmm. kind of, this, this fake life. And it's been between him and Blanchett knowing that they're creating this thing that isn't real. He knows that she's had relationships with women in the past, but in order to kind of create this own, um, this own mystique around himself and this own, false narrative around his own life. Um, he, he kind of forgives that, and he kind of forgets that.
0: And he kind of pushes it to the side as if, I mean, as in many instances during that time in the 50s, um, it was almost, he was like, well, something's not right with it's you mentally. It's, it's an, an illness. illness. We'll send you away for a bit. We'll take care of it. Um, and so there's a little bit of that coming across in his character, but I... I don't really know if you would agree with this, but it, it, to a certain extent, I, I did feel a little bad for his character because he is completely in love with Carol, the Kate Blanchett character.
1: I did too, but I'm also, I guess I, so I agree with you. I do feel bad, but also this is somebody who knows exactly what he's getting into. Yeah. And his world is crumbling around him because he started a world with this woman who he knows could never love him in... That way. Mm
0: -hmm. There's a love there, but it's not the kind of love that...
1: It's it's not the kind of love that her and Therese have. Yes, yes. Even though they have a child together. It's not the kind of love that they have. And I think that is kind of really... That's one of the fascinating parts of this movie. What dynamics does sexuality play in relationships? And Mm. I think this movie posits, it hypothesizes... And it kind of puts out there that, you know, it matters a whole lot. Um, You know, it's not the only thing. There has to be that human connection there, that understanding. But, I mean, if there's been a theme for our last few episodes, (laughs) it's that human sexuality is extremely important and it can't be shoved to the side. It has to be fully explored and it can't be censored.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's
1: essentially what Carol has had to do. She's had to self-censor because, in order to have a daughter, which is what she really wanted, mm-hmm. in order to have a daughter at that time, she has to be married to a man. Yeah, and not only does she have to have sex with the man, she has to be married to the man.
0: You can't have it out of wedlock. Because you can't. Have that would have been just like wedlock. two things going against her. <laughs> exactly.
1: You would have been a lesbian who had a child out of wedlock. That would have been crazy. Um, but. Yeah, so she's definitely had to make compromises, too. And I think that that's, you see that in Blanchett's performance, and you see kind of that tension between what she wants and what, and how comfortable her life is. Because, frankly, she's well off.
0: Mm -hmm. And she's
1: not independently wealthy. She's wealthy because of her husband's job.
0: Exactly.
1: And, I mean, I can't. You know, in addition to just wanting a daughter, I can't imagine that the money was too much of a turn-off either. No, because you know, there's wanted... a certain
0: lifestyle that exactly. she would have gotten from that as Exactly. Well.
1: She's, she's you know, it, I don't mean this in a derogative way, but she is a high-maintenance individual. You kind of get that sense.
0: And, I mean, she also, I mean, kind of going with that, and this isn't meant to be anything either way, but she's also a housewife, so there's a certain standard of living that she's maybe become accustomed to, and being married to her husband, you don't want to lose that
1: necessarily. Right. You don't want to lose that flexibility that she has. You know, she has a a nanny. She has a maid. She has, you know, she's not your typical 50s housewife. She's your well-off, you know, New York City suburbs housewife.
0: Going into, like, Macy's or the big department store to do your Christmas shopping. Right.
1: And, and having lunch with your friends during the weekdays, you know, and... <laughs> the you ladies know,
0: who lunch. <laughs> exactly.
1: The, she is the definition of the ladies who lunch. Um, and I... You see that in Blanchett's performance. I will say, in some of the show roles, as we get into the film, um, as we get farther into maybe the Act Three territory of the movie, um it did kind of become a little bit transparent. It, it became less um, real for me. I saw uh, kind of the acting going on, and I saw the ma- the machinations of the script I'm kind just, of working itself. I'm just
0: curious what, what part...
1: I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that basically the Therese and Carol characters, they fall in love together, and they actually go on a road trip. And that's basically... that's. That's a good portion of the movie. That's probably a good half of the movie is them on a road trip together.
0: And I just want to preface that, too. They're on this road trip. They're clearly in love, but there's been nothing physical yet to that point, which is really interesting. Right, exactly. And
1: of course, you know, this being a love story, you know that there's a physical part coming. But what this movie does so uh, brilliantly, in my opinion, is that it saves it until about an hour and a half in. I would mm-hmm. say the yeah, first it was really
0: late. Yeah, that, what really I thought late. was really late. I was like, "What is this going to get into?" it?
1: Right, and there there wasn't. And we're talking no kissing, no nothing. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, there was maybe a tender hug. Right, but that was about it. There are
1: sideways glances, and uh, there's there was a lot of subtle tension. right. There's this sexual <laughs> tension, but there's this. Um, I think, and this this speaks to what Todd Hans is trying to do with this movie, and what he does so well, is that it's it's what's unspoken uh, that is important. And even though this this film, I think, has a pretty great screenplay uh, by Phyllis uh, Nage, I believe is how you neige? say Nege, Naji, Naji. It's spelled <laughs> Naji, but I think it's neige um, it's Up to
0: interpretation.
1: <laughs> up to interpretation, kind of like the film, but yeah, I um. So so most of this movie is this road trip that they're going on, but uh, afterwards, um, you know, the road trip has to end
0: mm-hmm. at Just
1: some point. Just as all
0: kind of honeymoon phases. Right. As all
1: honeymoons end, the real thing starts. And obviously, Carol, the character of Carol, needs to deal with this, this tension between her real life and this romantic life she has with Therese. Mm -hmm. And I think in those moments where she's kind of deliberating it um, and -hmm. her husband gets involved and her daughter gets involved and, you know, the rest of the society gets involved to a certain extent, um, that I I was kind of seeing the acting there. It was only for a few scenes. It was only for a few scenes, but I think, and I probably wouldn't have noticed it if it wasn't in contrast to what Mara's doing, which is playing everything... Just, it, she's just on it. Like mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. Like if someone's bringing the real on screen, it's it's it's, Mara. it's yeah, it's Mara consistently one hundred percent of the time. There was no part of this movie I did not believe her,
0: mm-hmm. what she
1: was doing. And Blanchette is a great actress, and I think she's kind of met her match in a lot of ways in this movie. <laughs> against Rooney Mara which surprised the hell out of me when I saw this movie. I think
0: it probably surprised the can audience too if they're awarding Clearly. her with the top honor for actresses.
1: Clearly. And I mean as I was saying all the prognosticators sight unseen, you know, before they'd You'd seen be this movie were like, well, of course it's going to go to Cape Blanchett. Everybody loves it. But Kate also Blanchett. it's called
0: Carol and she plays Carol, so exactly. it should go to Carol.
1: <laughs> but and this is going to and this plays into award season too.
0: Which I I don't know if we want to get too into it, but I did hear some things that Mara will be up for contention in the supporting actress category.
1: Right. So the Weinstein Company, who's distributing the film, has decided to put has decided to position Rooney Mara in the supporting actress category and Cate Blanchett in the lead actress category. Now, this is for all intents and purposes, you know, if you see the movie.
0: I think you'd be a little surprised Right,
1: you'd be surprised, and on one hand, yes, indeed, this is is awards season bullshit. Like, (laughs) this is clearly a lead role being marketed as a supporting performance. Um,
0: I mean, understandably, you do have Cate Blanchett, who just won the Best Actress two years years ago, ago. I believe. So, I mean, I can see why they would want to frame it, putting Cate Blanchett in the Best Actress category. But it's... It's so unfair to Mara. And I it's feel unfair so in bad. one <laughs> regard.
1: It's unfair in one regard, but I'm telling you right now, it's hers to lose in the supporting category. Yeah. And I fully support her in that category, even though it she should be is reversed. A leading
0: lady in even this though song. it
1: should be reversed, I understand completely, but I, I think she'll be just fine if she gets her Oscar.
0: Just going off of um, maybe awards worthy categories for this film. I completely loved the score. The score is
1: so beautiful in this film. Carter Burwell's score, um, he did this really um I don't even know how you would describe it. It's not period music.
0: It's not, but at the same time I'm like it fits it so well. I mean, this this is someone who previously has done another Todd Haynes work, Mildred Pierce. Um, but also done films like you know, the Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn Parts One and Two, or Where the Wild things are. So he's done kind of a variety of things. but honestly, I, I can't see this award going to anyone else. and if it does go to someone else, I'm gonna get so upset, even though we shouldn't live our lives dominated by the award season.
1: <laughs> right. yeah, but I, I do think I, I do think that is a good way to bring up the Burwell score because I I like I said, it's not period. It's not. Um,
0: it's It's not, not, but it
1: fits it it, so well. It fits it so well. And I think that also ties into, um, the visual stylings of this film. Mm -hmm. And if I can just go on a brief tangent about Mildred Pierce, I promise this will (laughs) make sense. So Mildred Pierce was, Todd Haynes has taken a, a bit of a break, uh, from films. Carol is basically his return, uh, to, a
0: tremendous uh, return. A
1: tremendous return to filmmaking. Uh, his previous film, uh, I'm Not There, was uh, a Bob Dylan biopic. Uh, he also worked with Blanchard on that film. But it was basically Bob Dylan through different periods of his life. Um, and it was a, it was a really interesting film. Um, but that was the last film he made, and that was about 10 years ago, I'd say. And in between, he did this HBO miniseries called Mildred Pierce starring
0: uh, Kate Winslet. Starring the Kate, Winslet. Kate Winslet. Exactly. But,
1: uh, but it was five <laughs> episodes of pure boredom for me. I don't think I actually ended up finishing it. I think I got through like three and a half episodes, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And it just wasn't. For me, I mean, it was it was impeccably shot and done, and uh, the the performances were great. Um, I believe it, I believe Guy Pierce was playing opposite uh, Kate Winslet, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but uh, for some reason, it just wasn't grabbing me, um, and so I, I, I kind of had to call it quits on Mildred Pierce. Maybe I'll maybe I'll return to it after Carol. Um, but in many ways, I think Mildred Pierce was the experiment. For Carol, he's he's experimenting with the visual style. Not only is he shooting on 16 millimeter again, as he did with Mildred Pierce, he's mm. shooting on 16 millimeter as opposed to 35 millimeter. Now, for for those who don't know, most most films are shot digitally now.
0: Please explain, Gavin. Yeah. some of us don't some, know. Some,
1: <laughs> some people in the room might not understand.
0: But, <laughs> that's me. That's me.
1: Right, but uh, mo- most films nowadays are shot digitally uh, for cost reasons, Um, or at least that's what the studios say.
0: It's the easy way. It's the
1: easy way because when you shoot a film uh, and you're finishing it digitally anyway, it's so much easier to not have to convert it, to not have to send dailies in to get them, uh, you know, to get the film literally developed. Um, You know, you can just view it, you you can edit within the camera if you want, you can delete takes you don't want, it's just so much easier, right? The workflow digital workflow is easier, but by doing that, you're also losing, um, you know, hundreds of years, like a hundred years worth of tradition really. And you're losing not so much now the look of film because digital, digital has kind of developed, um, where you can't really tell the difference. Oftentimes you can often apply filters and you can do things with a digital image to make it look less digital. You know, hashtag
0: no filter,
1: right? It looks, it looks more (laughs) real now, but basically when they, when they did used to shoot on film for the past 30 or 40 years prior to this transition into digital, they were shooting on 35 and 35 was the common thing. But nowadays, because digital is so advanced, you can't tell the difference between 35 and digital anymore. And so you can't, you can't see that, especially if you're finishing the 35, Digitally, If you're editing digitally and you're doing the color digitally and you're doing all of that stuff, it takes away that grain in the 35 millimeter film stock. And by grain, we're talking about those vertical lines that sometimes you'll see. They're very, very fine. Um, but it, it, it's the feel of warmth that you get from a film print that Mm. sometimes you don't necessarily get from some of the earlier digital films like uh, Collateral, the Michael Mann film or something like that. Uh, So he went with 16mm which has um, a grain that you can see more. It's a more obvious just visual cue that yes, this is on film, right? Um, But he's also shooting on a stock that films at that time period would have been shot on. And he's taking a cue, um, as Todd Haynes usually does with his movies, you know, See, Far From Heaven, Safe, all of that. He's taking cues from Douglas Sirk and from all of these filmmakers who really specialize in, like, melodrama. 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s melodrama. Mm-hmm.
0: And
1: uh, he's using the film grain to help tell that story visually, along with the terrific production design. and Which
0: is... Beautiful, I Which just is want to add in there.
1: Beautiful. And we were just researching this yesterday, um, and we discovered that although the film is set in New York for a large part, and then of course they go on this road trip, the film was shot in Ohio.
0: Cincinnati, if you're Cincinnati. any Ohioans listening Exactly. Out
1: <laughs> exteriors and interiors. And Which it's
0: I know you were a little surprised by
1: I was completely surprised because it is hard to fake New York, especially the exteriors. It's almost impossible.
0: There were a few moments when they'd be walking on the street, and I I forget which neighborhood they mentioned, but they mentioned a neighborhood, and I was kind of like, I don't really buy it.
1: It was like the Upper West Side or something. Yeah, I think it was Upper West. Actually, yeah, yeah. And
0: I was kind of like, I don't really buy it. Um, So in that sense, I was kind of like, I was a little taken aback by the the New York setting, I guess. But in all other senses, when they were outside the department store. It completely looked like maybe an old school New York or a 1950s New York.
1: Yeah, and this and this kind of ties into our discussion last week of Brooklyn, which mm-hmm. shot most of it in Toronto, but did shoot a few exteriors uh, in New York. I just think that... This it's, movie, the production design, the costumes... The, the costumes were
0: fantastic um, as
1: well. All to the cinematography. Uh, the cinematography done here by <laughs> Edward Lachman, who has worked with Todd Haynes before on Far From Heaven and... I'm uh, Not There. I'm Not There, but who also did The Virgin Suicides, mm-hmm. uh, the Sofia Coppola movie, which, I mean, if, the... if there is a visual <laughs> stylist uh, in working today in film, it's Todd Haynes and it is Sofia Coppola. I mean, Mm -hmm. they are tremendous. And, uh, that mixed with that Carter Burwell score just kind of ingratiates us into that setting and to this feel. And with the 16 millimeter photography, I just think it just on a technical level, this film is marvelous. And it looks like the budget was $150 million. Like, it just, like, it's so uh, sumptuous, but also real when it needs to be. When you go into Teresa's apartment, it's a New York apartment.
0: I, I will say, if though it was shot in Ohio, it completely looks like a New York apartment. Even down to the you know, very minimalistic. She doesn't own much, but what she does own, you know, she'll decorate with her pictures. Yeah, uh, she's developing. a photographer, which I don't think we've mentioned that, but she's a photographer. And so she'll kind of, like, decorate while she's developing her, her photos. And um, th- I think that's just a very, I don't want to say that's just a New York thing, but, you know, you're, you take what you have and you kind of decorate with it because you live in this shoebox apartment and... Uh, <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I, I I just gotta say like in terms of I gotta give it to Haynes here because this is a guy who like I said I think he was kind of test driving uh, a lot of these things with Mildred Pierce um, and so maybe that's why I might revisit it because it might be interesting to see the precursor again having seen Carol but I, I think from the very first moment when we see the Therese character framed in a cap in the back of a in a back of a taxi cab from the outside with the frost on this window and this fog and her kind of framed within that and the lights of the city kind of glimmering on the outside window during nighttime as she's just kind of staring blankly out the window. I mean, that tells you everything you need to know right there. And there's no dialogue. Mm -hmm. There's nothing there. And she's the only person in the frame. And I think the way that he is able to tell this story visually is masterful. And uh, I just, that is what really I took away from this movie. And uh, as we were saying at the top, you know, this is one of your favorite movies of the year. I can't disagree with you because this, uh, it it kind of blew me away on several levels. Um, But this journey it took me on that reminded me that like, oh yeah, movies can actually do this still. It was really uh, transportative, I guess.
0: I'm, I'm really glad. I was going to ask you that if we were kind of on the same page there in terms of this being one of the best films of the year, not just like the best romance film of the year, which at first when I saw it, I was like, this is definitely one of the best romance films of the year. But now I'm kind of not taking, I mean, I still think it's one of the best romance films of the year, but it, it is definitely, at least on our list, one of the best films of the year. And it's not just the performances by Blanchett and Mara, which though those those do make the film a whole film, but um, it's also the cinematography and the score and the direction. Um,
1: I think it's um, you know obviously I'm going to be proven wrong in five <laughs> minutes when I think of a different movie or something, but I I do think that this is maybe the most complete movie I've seen, or at least the most cohesive vision Mm -hmm. I've seen on screen this year. Um, And obviously, I'm probably going to think of a few things between now (laughs) and when this podcast gets posted. Um, And I'll probably beat myself up. Uh, If you disagree with me, let us know. Tweet us! Yeah, tweet us (laughs) or send us an email. But uh, that's what I think. I really do think that. And I'm just really glad that this film exists. I mean... This is the kind of film, in my mind, that should be being made all year round. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't just be for Oscar season. This is something, this is an adult movie. This is not because of its themes are particularly mature or adult, but that it requires a certain amount of maturity to appreciate um, the elegance with which this story is told. And it's that elegance that is missing the rest of the calendar year and it's really frustrating as someone who loves movies um as we both do to to kind of you know look forward to this year you know to because the the previous 9 months were just filled with utter and complete shit you know so it's kind of or at least not you there know, weren't
0: too many uh, golden eggs in there yeah
1: exactly we're picking and choosing little golden nuggets that are strewn throughout the year but why can't this movie come out in July? Why isn't this movie being financed by a major studio?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like it might have been even just 15, 20 years ago. It's extremely upsetting to me. And I think that this movie, the quality says that it should be. If quality were to dictate the marketplace, I think that it should be.
0: Yeah. And I, I think, you know, looking at the, the next film we're going to discuss in this episode... I don't necessarily know if it's the content or what, but I'm just curious why some of these films aren't necessarily being produced throughout the year. And it, like just going along with what you said, it's just it's a little upsetting when we have to wait towards awards season maybe for films like these to come out, and they're not necessarily going to get that wide release that they deserve.
1: That's why it is so important that I think that what we're not that what we're doing is so important, but <laughs> we that are people, changing lives. Right. But that what people, <laughs> that people, that the conversations we're starting here are kind of important because it gets people interested in these movies. And if you are at all interested in this conversation or you've already seen the movie and that's why you're listening to this show, tell your friends, mm-hmm. tell your family members, go out and see it a second time. You know, Pay to see this in theaters, because that's the only way these stories get told, is if people go to see them.
0: And, you know, I I hate to think that this might, I mean, maybe this, I'm speaking gibberish right now, but uh, if this does gain some awards attention towards, you know, Oscar season or even Golden Globes, it might get a wider release around that time, which is a little sad that that's the only way that that might get that boost, but... If you don't get it in your city until that point, um, you know, wait until then and I really hope that it comes to your city because you deserve to see this film in a theater the way in which it's supposed to be told. Um, Right, and
1: I I, I think you will. The Weinstein Company, again, as I said, is distributing the film. Uh, It's going to eventually go nationwide. It's not probably going to be playing at every single AMC. Um, But you probably aren't going to have to drive too far in order to see this movie. I mean, this past Friday, as we said, it opened in New York and L.A. Did some great numbers, which is super important. Very
0: exciting. Um, So
1: you can currently see it at the Angelica and then Paris Theater in New York or the Arclight Hollywood in the Landmark in L.A., but it is going to be expanding nationally, and I think it's going to be doing it a little bit more quickly than, you know, some other films. So hopefully by Christmas this should be around a city near you. Maybe you might have to venture out to the local art house. It's
0: very worth it, though. But it is worth it. We're telling you, go do it.
1: Exactly. You aren't going to have to go to, you know, you know, ...the city, like, two hours away in order to see this movie. It's going to be playing somewhere around you, so please do go see Carol. Uh, It's expanding nationwide, and it's currently playing in New York and L.A. Okay, so we're going to get into the connections uh, between this movie and Blue is the Warmest Color which is the second film that we're going to be discussing this episode. Uh, this film, of course, directed by Abdellatif Kashish. It won the Palme d'Or at the 2013 Cannes Film Festival and is the only film to win the Palme d'Or that shares the award not only with the director, but the two lead actresses as well. So with that, That's
0: huge. It is
1: huge. So let's get into it. This is Blue is the Warmest Color. So, confession time. As I said in the Carol review, I tend to follow obsessively what the goings-on of Ken.
0: He's not exaggerating. I just want to throw that in there. Right.
1: I literally (laughs) have it marked down in my Google Calendar... The the days of Cannes, and I have like the date and time of when the awards are going to be announced. So I'm following it. Even though I don't go, it's still in my calendar. He's
0: practically there, but he's not there. (laughs) But I'm not
1: there (laughs) at all whatsoever, and I probably will never be there. Um, But I guess I had heard so much about this movie coming out of Cannes, and of course it won the Palm d'Or. And um, it was one of those movies for me, and I think this is a relatively common experience, it was one of those movies where I'd heard so much about it, I felt like I'd already seen it. Or at least I already knew enough where it wasn't necessary for me to see it. Right? Like, I mm-hmm. felt like I got it. You, you got know?
0: the picture by kind of being like, well, they won. They right. got the best. They won.
1: It's a movie about, you know, it's a coming-of-age story. There's a lot of, you know, graphic sex scenes. That's great. Um, you know, it's very French. Okay, whatever. Um, I guess I'm a bit jaded in that regard, but I felt like I'd already seen it. And so I didn't make my way out to the theater to go see it. Um, and I didn't see it on Netflix until this episode. This is a new movie for both of us to Mm -hmm. having seen. And I guess I'm very glad to say that I was, I was just dead wrong. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised to find that I was dead wrong because I thought that this movie, you know, viewed through my own Cynical eyes. <laughs> I thought that it was just this very French coming-of-age story, you know, nothing really going on, just a lot of explicit sex to just kind of like, you know, get the can audience, you know, get their blood boiling a little bit. <laughs> uh, and it just, it, it just, you know, I I was viewing it very cynically, and then when I get into the movie, I actually see that not only is this yes, of course, it's a coming-of-age story, but it's about so much more than that. And it's about so much more than these sex scenes. And it's about so much more than the fact that these are two uh, young women who are trying to navigate uh, this kind of delicate relationship that, they're, that they've are that they kind of cultivated over the course of this movie. And, of course, it's a three-hour-long movie. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so all of that was kind of putting me off until I saw it, and I'm so glad that I was proven wrong. So before we delve into the conversation, I guess, Jenny, have there ever been any movies for you that maybe you've seen the trailer for, or you've you've heard the buzz about after it comes out, and you're like, okay, I get it, I don't need to see it, or I already know about it?
0: Yeah, I think... I can't necessarily think of one off the top of my head right now, but I know I'm definitely in the pool of people that doesn't necessarily see things the minute they come out, or I see it, you know, a year after it comes out. I'd say I'm almost, uh, I can almost compare that to me seeing, or listening actually, to a song, like a few months after it's been on the top 40 charts, and I'm kind of like, oh now I get why people were listening to that. or
1: Right. Uh, but it's <laughs> that act of, refi- but it's that, it's almost that act of refusal to be like, I don't want to engage with what mm-hmm. other people are enjoying because I get it.
0: Yeah. I get it.
1: And I'm and almost like, better than that. It's like, way. yeah,
0: I get It's good. I don't need to see it then. Like that right. kind of thing. Exactly. It's almost like a little bit of a point of pride. (laughs) Like, I'm not
1: seeing that. Exactly. And, I mean, I'm ashamed to admit that this is one of that film, but I think it's important because I think all of us do that to a certain extent Mm -hmm. with movies or different things in culture. Um, But I think it's also important to note when you're wrong. Uh, And with this movie, I was wrong. So let's get into... Why Gavin was wrong about, about <laughs> this, this This episode
0: movie. is titled, Why Gavin is Wrong. Right. It's, so it's not about know. Carol
1: or Blue is <laughs> Warmest Color. It's about me.
0: Um,
1: so, let's get into it. So, this movie follows uh, the character of Adele, played by uh, Adele... Our, our,
0: I, we believe it's ex, Ex-Charpolis.
1: Ex, Ex-Charpolis.
0: Ex-Archopolis.
1: Ex-Archopolis. <laughs> I mean, dear God, forgive me, but Adele E., uh, who plays <laughs> the character of Adele, and Emma, played by current Bond girl, uh, Lea Sado, um, who, of course, was in, uh, actually, another movie that we saw at the New York Film Festival, The Lobster. The Lobster, lobster yeah. Um, and she was terrific in that, of course um frightening actually. <laughs> frightening in that movie but um very very different kind of movie but uh it, it, the protagonist in this film is Adele played by Adele Ex-Sarpolis, Excharpolis. and uh it's really about her transitioning from high school where she has this core group of girlfriends and you know she's very into the humanities Um, she's kind of a mediocre student, whatever. She's floating by. She's a regular high school student. She Mm -hmm. likes her parents well enough. Uh, but they aren't fascinating individuals. They're just normal people. Mm -hmm. Uh, they eat a lot of spaghetti. A lot. (laughs) A lot of spaghetti. That's, and kind of get the sense that that's all her dad knows how to cook. Uh, he likes to drink wine, but they aren't French in the sense that, um, you know, there's this deep appreciation for wine and food. It's like okay, we're all home now, let's just kind of eat together and throw together a meal. Mm -hmm. It's very American in that way, I guess. Um, And uh, so in addition to her being in high school, it's also about this transition into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And it's about uh, her falling in love for the first time, and at the same time, that first love being with a woman and what is that like in a culture where or at least at an age where that isn't seen as socially acceptable especially when you're a girl
0: mm-hmm. or
1: or even when you're a guy but this is you know this is a, a story about two two women um where you know that isn't okay because you know they they've been there have been sleepovers and like they've seen each other naked before and Um, there's a lot of tension there. Uh, I think,
0: I think too, like going off, it's a story about her falling in love for the first time, but maybe her realizing the difference between like, without sounding too generic, the difference between like love and lust, whereas she's had sexual relationships before. So there's nothing new in terms of that. Right. But she's maybe understanding the, the emotional side of her sexuality and realizing maybe who she's actually attracted to. Um and I'm realizing that all in high school. Like, what a fucking terrible time to realize that. Because she we, we get to kind of see her experience and her journey in her own realizations about herself. And um we also come to learn that she has the worst fucking friends.
1: Right. She has the worst friends. And I think that's I think that's what really is so interesting about this movie. Um because even though it is so French, this movie mm-hmm. is so... It's very French. So, so French. I don't even know how you can make an American remake of this film. Like, sex scenes aside, I just don't know how you could do it. Because it is... Like, there are scene. I learned more about French society watching this movie than I did, you know, probably in... Studying all, French Yeah, in high studying school. French like, yeah. in high school or <laughs> anything. Um, but then there are these elements that kind of cross these cultural boundaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, these high school age girls uh, who are, you know, being super mean and super bitchy and super clicky. And And
0: there's there's an element, too, of bullying. And, I mean, she comes to school one day and one of her friends, you know, just kind of casually alludes to, like, you know... Do you like girls or something? She asks something like, are you gay? And she kind of goes like, no, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, And this
1: this friend starts to, like, hit on her. Like, hardcore, like, hitting on her and pointing out other girls and saying, like, what she likes in a woman and hardcore hitting on her to the extent where she actually, like, begins to make out with this girl. With mm-hmm. the Adele character. Um, and she initiates this thing. Um, and the Adele character construed this in a way that most people would. That, like, oh, oh, this is someone who's into me. And...
0: Yeah, like, oh, maybe we're more than friends. Right. And
1: and then, you know, she's thinking about it all, you know, all night. And then, you know, she corners her the next day uh, to kind of, like, tell her how much she loves her. And the and... girl
0: kind of backs off and goes, whoa what are you doing
1: I was just joking
0: yeah and and Adele kind of like I mean how could you not she takes it personally kind of like oh well I kind of I thought that that meant you liked me
1: right and so I think that I think that scene and that series of scenes it's it's really tricky and I think that's what I think that's what the movie does so well is that it handles uh, kind of these tricky dynamics uh, so well and it doesn't really give us a clear, answer to me my interpretation of that whole exchange from beginning to end was that this was a person who yeah she was on a smoke break they were both on a smoke break in the middle of a school day and they were just you know they were already friends and they were just shooting the shit but then i do think that this is these are two girls who are experimenting and they're pushing the boundaries of their own sexuality and they're trying to figure out Who they are as people, as you do in high school. And they're just happening to do it uh, sexually in this moment. Mm -hmm. And they're experimenting, really. And I think that the one girl who is coming on to Adele, I think she is kind of, she might be questioning things herself. Mm -hmm. But she might not be ready to commit. Or maybe uh, she was questioning, uh, you know, she, she tried it and it wasn't for her.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: or maybe she's ashamed of it you know so i do think that there there are these layers here so i don't think she was doing it just to be like this terrible human being like just to lead her on or anything or entrap her um but i do think that it really delves into the psyche of teenage girls um in this in this really uh fascinating but really beautiful way that really gives them the benefit of the doubt in a lot of ways
0: well, and then later on, also, she has her group of friends, and they kind of, they start to ask, you know, if she's into girls, and they're almost bullying her, saying, like, oh, well, you know, you you saw me naked at a sleepover, were you checking me out? And Adele, at that point, you know, hasn't fully come to terms that, you know, she is gay or by, or I'm, I'm not quite sure how she identifies in the film, but she, she hasn't come to terms with that yet. So she's like, you know, no, no, I'm not. And her friends really are not okay if she is in that situation. And they're really bullying her to the point that she eventually walks away. And I just, I think that that, it's almost like you see the nature of high school girls, but then that's amplified by the fact if they're, totally not okay with you being who you are, even if they're your friends.
1: Right. And it's, it's this, it's this weird dynamic because we're, uh, as I was talking about before, this film is very French and we see a lot about French society, which in many ways is very progressive, Mm -hmm. um, in that students are literally taking to the streets and they're, they're rallying and they're protesting, uh, for, you know, various things. There are so many protests and parades in this film. (laughs) Right? But that is French culture.
0: Which I guess um, I didn't realize until talking to you about this film, because I was like, well, I was on the parade scene, or the, the the activism scene, but I don't remember which one. And I was like, I, I, I remember just asking you about that, and you were like, well, that is French culture. Right. It's, and I guess it's I normal, It's normal
1: that. in that culture to, to strike and to protest and to take to the streets um, to earn your rights, or to at least... To, to combat this imbalance of power that you perceive. Um, and a lot of that is powered by young people. So there is this progressivism mm-hmm. uh, or at least these these progressive tactics that young people use in the country. But there's still this this religious you know it's a, it's a Catholic, it's a Protestant Christian nation to a certain extent, you know mm-hmm. And uh, there is this religious conservatism, still. And the movie doesn't deal with the religious aspect so much, but with the conservatism of the suburbs. You know, this isn't Paris. These are just, these are just uh, suburbs.
0: Which is why we see the family sitting down every night to eat their spaghetti meal together. Right,
1: exactly. I mean, this could be, this movie could take place anywhere, really, at certain moments, like in in the family home or in the schoolyard. Uh, These could take place anywhere. And um, So it is that kind of interesting dynamic between what people find socially acceptable and when they find it socially acceptable. At what age? Like, high school, uh, yes, you're learning so many things and you're becoming politically engaged and whatever, but uh, they still have these... They still can't get over the fact that their friend might have feelings for other women.
0: Yeah, and it's a little... I mean, as a viewer, it's a bit frustrating, but it is, I guess, a reality still today. It's a
1: reality, and frankly, that's a reality throughout the world. I mean, that isn't unique to France.
0: Yeah, and it's not unique to the U.S. either, I guess, like watching this. But um, I kind of want to get into now, we talked a bit about her first maybe realization of, um, Adele's realization of being into girls. And I kind of want to talk a bit about maybe once she meets uh, her romantic love interest of the film, Emma, played by Lea um their first interaction. Yeah,
1: so talk about that, because you had an interesting... I
0: did. This is where, um, so earlier in the episode, I mentioned when Therese first sees Carol in Carol um and there's this just moment of complete captivation and she sees this woman and she's just completely taken by her and there's a moment that I remember watching this movie um just the other night when Adele first sees Emma and there's it's it was a very similar moment to Carol in terms of just being completely captivated by this person that she's never really seen before and, and not just physically, but there's this, like, almost, like, wavelength that she's never seen someone like her before. And, um, it is kind of, I think, in a different way, it's not necessarily love at first sight, but the, it's almost this, uh, like, feeling that she's never felt in a person. And I just, for some reason, I saw that, and I was like, this is just like Carol, the, that first moment of connection. Um, and I don't know if that's just me knowing that I was watching this and we were doing this episode, but I definitely saw the connection between the two films, whether or not that that's an actual thing, but
1: (laughs) yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of commonplace with, in all romantic love stories. There is that moment when the two characters meet if they Mm -hmm. don't already know each other. Um, it didn't
0: feel cliched, though. It I didn't will say feel
1: cliché, and I think that speaks to Kashisha's abilities as a director. And the, the way he went about shooting that, we should get into in a second, but um, I think it does speak to his abilities as a director to kind of just kind of let that moment be and to let it play out.
0: Uh, and there's a few moments in in the film where he just lets you really sit with it,
1: right. and
0: you know, it might linger on something a little longer than you'd expect.
1: Right. And so I think we should get into the fact that most of this movie is shot in close-up. And regardless of who is in the frame, it's very much in close-up. And uh, especially with Adele, we see a lot of uh, the Adele character, because she is the protagonist, obviously. Um, But it's, it's, it's shot... In close up, it's so in that scene when they first meet in the street as they're crossing, it's there isn't that establishing shot of oh, and here is the Adele character crossing the street now. Mm-hmm. It's very much Adele is just crossing the street. We the camera is tight on her, right? It's a uh, it's her torso to her head. And uh, she's crossing the street. She catches eyes with this other woman. We see with the o- blue
0: hair. With with mention. blue hair, <laughs> the
1: other woman looks back. There's a close up on her face. There's a close up on Adele's face. There's a close up on the other girl's face, and there's a close up on Adele's face. And then the scene moves on. And that's and that's the those are the mechanics of how the story's told mm-hmm. uh, visually, but how the actors express themselves within those close-ups, I feel, is, uh, you know, I think that's in large part why uh, they they shared uh, the Palm d'Or with Kashish on this film. Oh, um, for sure. Because they are given so much to do with so little dialogue in so many ways. I mean, there are scenes, there are dialogue-heavy scenes, and there are fight scenes, and there are love scenes, and whatever, but there there's a lot of time, especially... With Adele, where it's just her looking at things, or it's her listening, or her uh, taking things in, and we kind of have to, uh, we kind of have to put, we kind of have to project what she's thinking onto those scenes, and I think she does it so well because her face is so expressive. Both of theirs are, mm-hmm. um, that uh, for me, the movie doesn't. I didn't even really notice the film was shot mostly in close-up until probably at least the two-and-a-half-hour mark where I'm like, wow, this movie has a lot of close-ups. Oh, <laughs> because the, the performances were so engrossing that I was very much in the story being told. And it really pulls you in, mm. in a way. And I think with a lesser director at the helm, it might have felt a bit uh, film schooly, And it might have felt a bit like... You know, like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing here. You're doing close-ups. So that way we get closer to the characters. But if you don't have the performances to back that up and you don't have the technical aspects to back that up, the close-ups don't work. Mm-hmm. And I think, if anything, you know, whatever you say about this film, you have to admit that the two lead performances here are superb.
0: They are superb. And, I mean, just, I guess we're watching this... Two years after it's been released, but um, I mean, relatively, these two actresses, to me at least, are unknown um, until we saw the lobster, and you know, until yeah, Lais has
1: kind of become an international figure.
0: But I mean, these two actresses—they're completely superb, and I mean, they're not household names, which is fine. But I, I just, I felt pretty surprised and I feel I am like a broken record saying this, but I, I can't imagine anyone else playing these two characters. Um, but I think that's a testament to their performances. And I, I really felt like I was in the world of Adele, which, um, not surprisingly is actually like the French title of the film or Adele's life or life of Adele. Life of Adele yeah. But, uh, I, I completely felt like I was in her world, and whether that's the clo- the, the factor of the close-up shots or the screenplay, um, I don't really know what quite it was. But I Obviously, think honestly, I think it boils down everything. to her
1: performance. I mean, regardless of how you shoot it, I think her performance is so spectacular that it's just impossible not to. Be with her, and there were so many. We saw the last half of this movie together, and there were so many moments where, like, I was, I was audibly like, kind of making like little groans during the awkward moments because I knew where things were going, and like the awkward uh, exchanges between her and her parents when they meet. Her girlfriend for the first time, or and when, they don't
0: know she's. Her and they girlfriend. don't know
1: she's the girlfriend, and it's and it becomes apparent over the course of the conversation that they don't know that that mm-hmm. she hasn't come out to them. Or when the two girls are finally living, the two women are finally living together uh, after uh, Adele has graduated high school and she's uh, she's become a teacher finally. And uh, the two girls eventually break up because you know this movie is a tragedy. It's it's pretty obviously foreshadowed at the at the beginning of the film mm-hmm. with these classroom scenes. But, um, yeah, I mean, I just think that her performance grounds this mo- movie. Leah Sado is, I, I think she's terrific, but, and their chemistry is what makes this movie work. But yeah, this performance without, uh, Adele, I'm sorry, uh, Adele. adele you know, adele E, <laughs> Uh, without her, this movie just would not, um, just, I just can't imagine anybody else in this role because the movie would be so incredibly different without her. And I feel for her, mm-hmm. and I don't want to. I don't want to talk about that final scene uh, between the two of them, but suffice to say, there is a if, there's a highly emotional scene at the towards the end of the film that is so awkward and is so inappropriately awkward <laughs> for the... Not inappropriate in the sense of, like, oh, this movie's inappropriate, but, like, what the character is doing is so inappropriate for the time and place mm-hmm. that it's just, like, what are you doing? But it, you feel... You understand where she's coming from, and I think that's the hardest tight wire act to walk.
0: Well, and there, there's one event that leads to their eventual the relationship's eventual demise, um, that we see. It's just Adele, and she is out doing something, without spoiling it, but, um... I know, I was kind of like, oh, like, no, don't do that, and I mean, this kind of goes back to when we saw the film Love a few weeks ago, where you're kind of, you're with the protagonist along with this whole story, and you're seeing almost everything they're doing, and you're kind of like, no, what are you doing? (laughs) And it's just that kind of frustrating balance, but at the same time, you know, you're watching them kind of develop on screen, and I, I completely agree with everything you're saying in terms of that. And I know there were just moments on screen, or at least when I was watching Unfold on Screen, where I was kind of cringing, or I was kind of like, <sighs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely feel uh, the same way here. How can we make sense of this, having seen Carol? Carol, I... how can we justify this? Because we planned this episode without <laughs> having seen Blue is the warmest color, so which is can a we just
0: opposite, yeah? <laughs> can we justify this pairing? I I think we can completely justify it, and I mean, just I mean, it's so much more beyond just the the lesbian relationship, which I think a little. We kind of chose it because we knew that they were very similar themes, but um, I think it's completely justified in that we're seeing Therese and Carol, uh, you know. She's coming of age, but it's a different coming of age than Adele's story. um, but they're very similar in that they're learning these things about themselves, and um we're seeing these loves these love stories unfold on screen, and I guess kind of the the societal consequences that sometimes can go along with that and how those affect the relationships.
1: If there are two running themes throughout uh, these early episodes of the podcast that we've had, it's that we like to explore graphic sex content, and <laughs> we like to talk about that and way. we like to talk about coming of age stories. And I
0: swear we're not even planning. We're it not that planning way. it that way.
1: And next week we're definitely getting away from that. Yeah, Jenny, how can they check out "Blue is the Warmest Color"?
0: First of all, I just have to say you can see "Blue is the Warmest Color." I know all of you listening right now have Netflix. I know for a fact all of you have Netflix, and if you don't,
1: you have your girlfriend or your boyfriend's. You have password. your
0: neighbor's password. Yeah, you have your hair. parents' password. You you have access to Netflix, and that's how you can see "Blue is the Warmest Color." Um, and you should definitely see it. I was a little scared of the three-hour runtime, but I have to admit it's very well-paced. It goes by no. quickly, and I just
1: and I just gotta say here, this movie. I was I was I I initially started this movie. As if it were a job. Because sometimes when you watch movies for this podcast, sometimes it could kind of feel a bit like a job. But I think we've had a good track record so far of being pleasantly surprised. And this movie's no exception. It grabbed me within the first five to seven minutes. Mm -hmm. And it didn't let me go.
0: No, yeah, and you have no excuse because we all know you have access to Netflix, so check it out on Netflix, but um, if, if you've actually already seen it and you're listening to this, just know that it's also available on the Criterion Collection on DVD and Blu-ray. It's, um, it's not available on Hulu, the Criterion Collection there, but it is available in physical form, so if you love it so much go out and buy it
1: right and even if and even if you've heard our discussion or you've heard about this film and you you kind of think that this is kind of like your kind of film uh this to me is worth a blind buy um and currently uh with the criterion collection they're doing a 50% off sale until the end of november on barnesandnoble.com uh and that's on all that's a, criterion collection that's
0: a crazy discount yeah, We that's just need crazy. to just like say that like and we're not being paid to say this i just want no, to throw that no no
1: i mean I, <laughs> I i i take i take advantage of it every single time it comes up um, and i buy way too many movies during this period of time but this is worth the is blind buy this is the
0: most time of the year
1: exactly i think it's like 15 <laughs> bucks maybe to pick up a Blu-ray, 10 to 15 bucks to pick up a Blu-ray of this, which is crazy for a movie of this quality. Uh, I don't know if the Criterion sale is in Barnes & Noble stores, but I think it is as well. So I think it applies on barnesandnoble.com and in Barnes & Noble stores, but uh, definitely check that out if you're interested in owning the movie.
0: In other words, there's no excuse for you to
1: not see this movie. There's absolutely no excuse, (laughs) and we also expect emails but we're going to get into and tweets. emails and tweets but and we're going to get into how we contact that i just kind of wanted to talk about uh, our next episode uh which is as i said at the beginning of the show we're a bi-monthly podcast and uh we've kind of been giving out these bonus episodes weekly for the past four or five weeks now uh but now we're going to get into the swing of things into our usual thing only to break that rule a few weeks from now during the Christmas season. But, um...
0: They don't need to know that. Exactly. (laughs) But, uh,
1: on December 8th, so two, uh, so two weeks from now, uh, when you're listening to this, we're going to be doing, uh, the new Spike Lee joint. We're going to be doing Chirac, and we're going to be doing the Steve James film, The Interrupters. Uh, Chirac, of course, uh, well... Actually, I don't want to talk too much about it, but I'll just say that The Interrupters, I think, will provide uh, some great context and also just a great film uh, Mm -hmm. for us to talk about uh, when we talk about those two films. So you can find, uh, you'll be able to find Chirac in theaters. Uh, It's that Friday before uh the 8th so what would that be the Fourth? Is that the fourth? It, yeah i believe it would be the fourth then so you can find that in select theaters on december 4th it'll eventually be going nationwide and then you can see it on amazon prime of course to stream and the interrupters you can currently stream on amazon or itunes for only 2.99 what a deal what a deal so jenny <laughs> how can people get into contact with us if they want to
0: if you if you want to get into contact with us, which we hope you do, we love hearing from you. Uh, you can tweet us at still not rated. send us a message on facebook facebook.com slash this podcast is not yet rated or send us an email at this podcast is not yet rated at gmail.com. And of course we also have our website, which is beautiful, newly redesigned. Uh, this podcast is not yet rated. com.
1: And I do just want to say that those archive episodes, those episodes that you might remember from the original series... Back um, in the
0: olden days. Back in
1: the olden days. um, We are still working on those. It's going to be slow going, uh, but eventually, uh, sometime in the new year, uh, we will be pushing those out in some way or another, and you'll be able to find those on the website. So stay tuned for that.
0: It'll be a good TBT, so... Exactly. Stay tuned. Um... And with that, I'm Jenny Loeffler.
1: And I'm Gavin Briscoe. And this has been This Podcast is Not Yet Rated. Adieu, Auf Wiedersehen, Gesundheit, Farewell.